Support for this episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere is brought to you by MX Publishing, with the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world. New novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at mxpublishing.com. And by the Wes Express, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wesexpress.com. I hear of Sherlock Everywhere, episode 230, Sherlock Holmes' Little Book of Wisdom. I hear of Sherlock Everywhere, since you became a stronger. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jacket office. <laughs> The game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger streeter regulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Hello and welcome once again to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Walder. And Bert, are you ready to drop some pearls of wisdom on our audience today? Oh, absolutely. Not, a, uh, not only am I ready to drop some pearls, I'm ready to get down on my hands and knees and see if I can... Pick them up out from under the dresser they've rolled to. <laughs> you know, I had a, a an English teacher in high school, Mrs. Zack. We had her uh, senior year. Her husband was a, a longtime benefactor to the library in our town, and she was just a, a wonderful English teacher. Wonderful, wonderful, as she used to say. And we used to chide her with uh, Lawrence Welk-isms. But she would stand in front of the class, and she said, now make sure you have a pen and paper handy, prepared to capture the pearls of wisdom as they flow <laughs> from my mouth. And I still think of that to this day, oh, some five good. years on. Yeah, so. very good. Well, uh, we are not here today to talk about Mrs. Zach. We're here to talk with Glenn Dakin and Sherlock Holmes' Little Book of Wisdom. We'll be getting right to that in just a moment. First, we would like to remind you that if you would like the show notes for this episode, and there will be links, uh, go to ihost.co slash ihost230, all lowercase, ihost.co slash ihost230. That'll take you directly to the ihearofsherlock.com page where this episode resides and there you can find all sorts of goodies a summary about uh, our episode uh, links to play it if you want and uh, how to get in touch with us on social media we are i hear of sherlock on all of the major sites instagram twitter facebook youtube and if you'd like to get in touch with us you can do it there you can leave us a comment directly on those show notes, or you can email us at comment at ihearofsherlock.com. That's an email address that you're going to have to keep in store for later in the episode because we actually have a copy of Glenn's book as a prize for this 
episode's canonical couplet, the quiz where we give you two lines of poetry and we give you a chance to identify which Sherlock Holmes story it comes from. And doing so gives you an opportunity to win a copy of Glenn's book. Glenn Dakin started out as a writer and cartoonist in the UK independent comic scene in the 1980s. He's known for his graphic novel, Abe, Wrong for All the Right Reasons, the cartoon collection Temptation, the Not Yeti Children's Books, and the fantasy novel series Candleman. His work for Marvel Comics includes Motormouth, Plasmer, and Clandestine, as well as his own creation with artist Phil Elliott, The Rockpool Files. For Hero Collector, he wrote and illustrated Mr. Spock's Little Book of Mindfulness and Star Trek Cocktails, a stellar compendium in 2020. Be More Batman, under the Dorling Kindersley label, appeared in 2021. Glenn likes outdoor swimming, writing songs, and solving mysteries. Glenn, welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Hi, it's nice to speak to you. Well, I guess the only mystery we have to solve is why would you want to come on our show? <laughs> I, I, I will talk to anybody about Sherlock Holmes. Oh, I'm not, I'm, perfect. I'm, you, you are a kindred spirit then. Yes. I'm, I'm tired of, of boring my family with it. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, speaking of family, let's get the perfunctories out of the way. We as longtime Sherlockians are aware of a Sherlockian or, or an author by the name of Martin Dakin. Any relation? Uh, no, no relation. In fact, I haven't even heard of him. So that shows you how my Google searches have been uh, <laughs> have not helped me. Well, that's, <laughs> that's completely okay. He's well, one of the very more obscure um, uh, Sherlockians. He wrote a book, I think, back in the seventies or so. Wow. Um, what, Bert, do you happen to have the the volume handy? I'm putting you on the spot here. <laughs> Well, of course, Scott. I, if your definition of handy is it, is it somewhere in the room that I'm sitting in? Yes. Oh, yes, elementary yes. then. I can find it. <laughs> I can certainly find it. But um, while I do that, uh, Glenn, why don't you tell us how you first came to meet <laughs> Sherlock Holmes? I um I was kind of uh, always familiar with Sherlock Holmes because they used to repeat repeat the uh, black and white movies here in the UK on wintry afternoons. And I, I remember thinking, you know, I'm, I'm much more usually interested in science fiction and fantasy. And it wasn't the kind of thing I would normally watch, you know, like old fashioned, uh, black and white movie, you know, uh, mainly talking, talking heads, people wandering around in bleak landscapes or on London streets. But I found when I was watching it that there was a lovely kind of droll humor to them, you know, and the, the sharpness of Sherlock's mind and the and the 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 humor with Watson they were they were they were very they had an entertainment value that seemed to surpass one's expectations and then you got caught up in it uh, and then I um what really hooked me was that one day I was reading I think it was an old Reader's Digest or something where it was a Christmas issue and as a kind of Christmas treat they had printed the blue carbuncle. And I, and, and I was kind of reading it as a Christmas story rather than as a Sherlock Holmes story. And I just found that as I was, as I was following the mystery, it seemed to sort of paint a picture of London in Victorian times 
And it just literally describes the walk that they do to go to the Covent Garden markets. And there are places in it that I'm familiar with from stumbling around London myself. So, uh, yeah, so it was a mixture of the old Basil Rathbones uh, and then coming to actual Conan Doyle through reading The Blue Carbuncle. <laughs> what a great introduction. It doesn't get better than that, really. And, and that, <laughs> that association with uh, with real-life London – um, and as you describe it, the, the wonderful job that Conan Doyle did with the setting and describing that to all of us, not to mention uh, just the relationship between Holmes and Watson. It really makes them feel more uh, more approachable, even though Sherlock Holmes is kind of on a pedestal for a lot of people. There are certain elements in some of the stories that come out as uh, amazingly human. Yes, yes. And also your observation about the Blue Carbuncle being a Christmas story is something that really strikes home for both Scott and I and a lot of American Holmesians or Sherlockians because the group of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts over here that was started in the 1930s by a writer named Christopher Morley, that early group produced at one point a special edition of the Blue Carbuncle. And Morley wrote an essay in which he said, you know, the Blue Carbuncle is a better Christmas story because it's a it's a Christmas story without slush, a better Christmas story even <laughs> even than uh, than Scrooge. It's uh, it's true. It's in, it's an interesting point. It's a Christmas story without slush. It's it sort of it really captures something of the of the mood of the, of London uh, over Christmas and and the, and the kind of the real people there. It's, it's got kind of a working class story as well. It's not so full of. Um, elite figures as some of the stories are and uh it has a wonderful uh evocative atmosphere I mean, you, you could literally go out on christmas eve and walk down the streets with Holmes and watson and they wouldn't be that much different from there from in his day really i mean covent garden is still a market all those roads you could still walk them in a nice um, murky winter's atmosphere with a with the street lights glimmering through the fog you know, you could convince yourself you were you were back in back in the days of homes in quite a few parts of London still. Well, I'm ready to go. I don't know about you. Um, <laughs> yeah, me too. I pulled the book off the shelf uh, while we were speaking. It's a Sherlock Holmes commentary by D. Martin Dakin. Excellent. Well, I shall look up that. I shall look up yeah. my distant uh, relative or ancestor or whether whether there's no connection whatsoever. <laughs> right. I'll be I'll just claim it I'll claim it there you go I I couldn't yes. find any information about uh Martin online except for uh this book so that's he's got that going for him my investigation will begin there, there we go well let's talk about that uh Glenn because uh, you've you've laid out uh 10 precepts in this book uh, that you pull out of the canon itself, that you pull from the Sherlock Holmes stories. L let's first talk about your inspiration for putting together a book like this. Wh where did you get the idea of uh, wisdom coming from Sherlock Holmes and packaging it up like this? Uh, it well, first of all, I was working with this for the same publisher on a book about Mr. Spock. Uh, and the, uh, the, we had the idea of doing Mr. Spock's Book of Mindfulness, and um, when we were looking at Mr. Spock, it, you know, I, I was thinking, I was f kind of forced to acknowledge that quite a lot of the traits of Mr. Spock really come in a line down through Holmes, uh, as so many imitators have, have. You know, you have this very sharp intellect and someone who spots tiny details that other people miss, but at the same time, this very passionate 
analytical nature is mistaken for an unemotional nature, you know, which is just not true. Um, but, um, yeah, so uh, it was that that kind of triggered off and reminded me of, uh, of, of Holmes and his, his perceptions. And, um, so after having done the Spock book, it seemed to be a kind of natural sort of ancestral step to go back to the original, really. Um, you know, the, I mean, the Mr. Um, Holmes is a kind of, uh, I mean, you can kind of go back, I think, to the Count of Monte Cristo as well, but a kind of prototype superhero of someone who has an exceptional, uh, ability to solve things and get things done above, above the rest of us mere mortals. Yeah. Yeah. And is, is that same insight something that occurred to you when you did your other book, Be More Batman? I mean, the, the Batman one is a kind of, uh, I mean, it, it's a kind of a hu- more of a humorous one, really. I mean, I had a lot of fun, uh, with Be More Batman. But of course, you know, Batman, they used to call him, uh, the world's greatest detective, uh, as a kind of byline before Batman became, the Dark Knight and became very, very sort of inhabited a completely sinister world like he does now. The earlier Batman stories certainly, uh, uh all the way through to the sixties and seventies, really, you know, he was, uh, the detective side of it was very, very important. And uh, obviously a, a huge amount of it is straight out of, of Sherlock Holmes and, uh, you know, all, uh, the colorful array of, of enemies as well. And, uh, the, the, you know, there's a kind of, uh, Alfred is a kind of Watson figure at times, you know, there's a, there is there, I'm not, I'm not calling for any, you know, law cases here, but there are some connections <laughs> between Bat- Batman and uh, Sherlock Holmes, obviously. Yeah. Well, well, no, that's been observed, you know, a lot. And there have, there were those comics, there were a couple of crossover comics. I have copies of them somewhere with, with actually, they put Batman and, and Holmes in the same story, but but also, I think if you go back into it, Bill Finger and Bob Kane introduced Robin uh, solely for Batman to have somebody to talk to. <laughs> yeah, well, to have someone to explain the plot to. Right. And, uh, you know, this is the kind of um, – well, this is, an un- un- this is interesting because in a sense, uh, Holmes is untypical of certain things uh, because um, – you know, they have this, they have this thing in Doctor Who, you know, that you have to have somebody sort of less intelligent than you around to explain things to so that the audience can understand what's going on. But of course, in Holmes and Watson, well, Watson is an extremely capable and intelligent, uh, emotion, emotionally perceptive character. So he provides Holmes with a lot of useful information, but that, that is the, um, the tip, you know, typical author's device is to have somebody um, for the for the genius to bounce off of, otherwise they become a bit irritating after a while, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Now I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there was a film in the mid nineteen sixties called A Study in Terror, with John Neville as Sherlock Holmes, and it was about Holmes versus Jack the Ripper. And this wow, was I don't think I have. It, it's it's worth checking out. Um, it's it's a good period piece. Um, it's it's uh, it happened. It was produced around the same time as the Adam West Batman series, <laughs> and one of the promotional posters for the film has Holmes kind of pointing, you know, ruggedly and into the distance and there's pow, biff, zam around him, <laughs> and it says the original caped crusader. And, oh, well, uh, yeah, he does wear a cape, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Just another nod to the connection between uh, Holmes and Batman. 
Well, also, um, Holmes is, is, as I mentioned in my book, is extremely, um, you know, good at fighting. I mean, a lot of detectives aren't, you know, I don't think you ever see Columbo throw a punch in all of his, <laughs> you can't imagine him, uh, fighting someone on the edge of a waterfall, can you? But, um, in, uh, you know, in Sherlock Holmes, it's a, it's a repeated, um, feature of the stories that he, he sees the ability to fight as an absolute necessity of his job and that he tackles it as scientifically as he tackles every other aspect of his life. You know, he doesn't leave anything to chance. He makes sure he knows how to throw somebody, how to knock somebody out. You know, he, he's gotten, he's got to, it's like a, it's like a job qualification that he needs. Yeah, well, let's talk about that a little bit because that is one of the chapters in in uh, the Sherlock Holmes little book of wisdom here, um, chapter four, the art of fisticuffs. Um, how does this come in handy for us in our modern uh, crazy lives? Well, um, I'm not really suggesting that you go out there and um, <laughs> knock people out, but what I'm saying is that. Um, Sherlock Holmes was prepared to do what was necessary, uh, you know, to, to achieve his, uh, to achieve his ends, which was in his day, you had to literally be able to physically fight people, uh, to overcome them under certain circumstances. It's a matter of taking the pains necessary. So you might not actually need to, to knock somebody unconscious, but if you're in a dispute with somebody, you need to know your stuff. You mustn't be afraid of, um, getting your hands dirty, as it were, um, in terms of just you know finding and doing what you need, um, so I'm not I'm I'm not 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 suggesting that you go out and punch people. Or you, but, you uh, don't think we need to lead our nemeses to <laughs> the uh, the cliffs of the Reichenbach Falls? I don't I don't I don't think so. But um, it's a question of taking the pains, you know, um, taking pains when things get difficult and not shying away from them. That's often the case where. You know, Holmes will, when Holmes defeats, um, uh, Moriarty at the Reichenbach Falls, he is using a form of martial arts, which was very, very new at the time. I mean, it had really only been heard of for about three years, I think, uh, that this particular uh, type, um, that Holmes mentions that he uses. And, um, you know, in our terms, that was the equivalent of Holmes being up with the very latest. Uh, you know, he, he, we think of the Sherlock Holmes stories as quaint and old fashioned, but in their time, he was quoting the most exotic up to the moment skills and fighting, uh, you know, fighting skills that were available at the time. So, um, he was prepared to be right up to the minute with his tactics. As a matter of fact, they were so new, uh, that, uh, Watson couldn't even get the word right. <laughs> no, we have. Oh, well, I, I actually slipped my mind, but uh, I remember I looked it up at the time. But. Yeah, yeah. Watson quotes it as Baritsu, and it's actually Bartitsu. Aha. Uh, well, wow. mm. so, so, you know, sorry, carry on. No, no. Um, Glenn, I'm curious about the, you know, your process about, about how you got into this. And I just wanted to tell our listeners that this is, um, a charming and and beautifully written, at least in my view, and and I lo- and obviously considering your background, the illustrations, you know, really add such a wonderful part of the conversation you have here you. Between, the, between the writer and the reader. But in your introduction, you say, you know, it's uh, this this so thing that Holmes supposedly said, you know, elementary, my dear Watson, 
you know, whether or not he said it, it's a very well-known phrase. And why is that, you say? And, and you say, you know, we all have a yearning for things to be made elementary, for a higher hand to explain this complicated life and open our eyes. So this book, instead of just applying Holmes' methods to the solving of crimes, this book will show you how his skills can be applied to everyday life. And then you have an example. On the one hand, The Hound of the Baskervilles is a tale about a demonic dog. But on the other, it's about how fear is used to manipulate us. That advert on your feed has just prompted you to buy hair insurance with a giant luminous pooch. <laughs> and, and Holmes, you say, seems omniscient. He, and then, you know, you, you, you describe him a little bit, his approach to knowledge. Instead of being dazzled by his genius, we've taken a good look at the range of skills he considered important, sorted them into helpful areas, and deduced some wisdom that can be applied to your life. So, you know, there there are plenty of books about Holmes quotations and, and things that are extracted from the canon, the cases of Sherlock Holmes. But that's not what this book is. You know, it's this conversation and the example about the hound is a great one. So how did you get here? I mean, you know, you look at these 60 stories. Um, you know, how did you how did you go through and, and, and sort of sift through and find these elements and then think about, you know, how they might be applied. I mean, it just seems to me to be quite an extraordinary creative effort. Thank you. Um, I think one of the things is, um, this is something my wife said to me once about Isaac Asimov, and I was saying it was funny that I could read Isaac Asimov when I was 10 and find him clever, and I could read Isaac Asimov now when I'm slightly older and still find him clever. Um, it, it's, you know, I have, and my wife was saying that's because Isaac Asimov, um, you know, he, he was, uh, he was brilliant. And you see the brilliance in different ways in, in different ages. You know, you, you can, you can see the brilliance when you're a kid and you can still see brilliance when you're older, but you, perce- you perceive it differently. And it's the same, I think, with, um, with Conan Doyle. I mean, the stories have, they're not just about, if they were only about solving crimes, we would get bored of them. But they are not only about solving crimes. They have universal qualities underneath the crimes. You know, um, the Hound of the Baskervilles isn't, isn't about a man being terrorized by a hound. It's about fear and it's about how, uh, so- somebody cynical and ingenious can use fear to manipulate someone to their own death. And these, qualities are actually things that we can all relate to and the and the stories are full you know the home stories what's one of the other other one of the things that's so hard to imitate in Conan Doyle is that the stories are so different you know his mind keeps moving ahead you know you he writes one type of mystery but then the next one there's a totally different emotional trigger for the crime or a totally different um kind of uh, motive you know in play so Underneath all of these mysteries, there isn't, it's not about cops and robbers. It's about the human heart. It's about the human mind. And that means that you, from all those stories, you can derive something. And I was looking through them, like, for example, the blue carbuncle, um, uh, you know, Holmes calls the gems the devil's pet baits, you know, and he's, he's saying that the, you know, where, where you see, a, where you see a gem, uh, Watson, you know, I, I see a history of blood. You know, are you aware of how many people have died 
for this object. You know, Holmes sees beyond the material realm. He can see, he can see through things to what, to what the, the, the real history behind them, the real pain behind them. And uh, those, those things are of great interest to us. You know, the, there's a lot more to life than the surface that we all inhabit. And, and Holmes takes us there. He takes us through these superficial details into the bigger feelings beyond. Yeah. And, you know, I love the way you end that particular chapter, Glenn. You, you go from talking about the blue car- carbuncle to the treasure that Holmes retained in A Scandal in Bohemia, which was Irene Adler's photograph. And and you say that uh, here we can learn from Holmes. If we, if we learn to value the things which touch our soul rather than our wallet, then we have true riches. And such things being so personal are not the kind that others can ever steal from us. What a beautiful sentiment. Thank you. Well, I, I think that's very reassuring in a way. You know, um, when you when you watch uh, these mysteries or you read these books where someone has something stolen from them and they're, they're heartbroken, often the things that mean the most to us aren't those things that, that can really be stolen. And uh, I love that in that story. You don't get much of a glimpse. You know, Holmes isn't materialistic. He values deeper things but in that one story he's offered a ring isn't he which he which would be worth a fortune but instead of it and these are on the days where he couldn't google irene adler images you know see her whenever he wanted to he had to he asked for the only picture of her in existence and to him that was that was worth more you know that was worth more than wealth so it it gave you um an insight into holmes's idea of wealth which is completely different absolutely and you know, to, to your point earlier about reading Asimov and pulling things out at different phases of your life, um, you know, I'm reminded of a quote from Clifton Fadiman. Now, Clifton Fadiman was uh, an early radio host. He hosted a program called Information, Please. And Christopher Morley, who Bert mentioned earlier, uh, who, uh, who wrote about uh, the Blue Carbuncle and founded the Baker Street Irregulars, Morley was a regular guest on Information, Please. So there's a, there's a bit of a connection here. But Fadiman at one point wrote, when you reread a classic, you do not see more in the book than you did before. You see more in you than there was before. And I suppose that that's the wonder of keeping something like the Sherlock Holmes collection around, is we can return to them time and again. And there's a sense of familiarity there, a sense of comfort, but there's also a sense of wonder that we can pull out. And, and you know, just as you have kind of elucidated some of these chapters about, uh, about deduction and observation and um, uh, things like uh, questioning and disguise and whatnot, we can probably pull out 10 more different elements about our existence and apply them to the Sherlock Holmes stories as well. Yeah, I mean, um, I think I think you can. I mean, I, I certainly had a few more chapters up my sleeve <laughs> than I could fit into the book. And um, it was, uh, you know, it, it was um, the the format was was full. But, you know, there, there are loads of other aspects of life uh, hidden away in them. And um, I've both by no means exhausted the the topic. I mean, I, the type of intelligence that Conan Doyle gave Holmes is a very is fascinating to study and very very hard to pin down. But that's another thing; it's not formulaic. You know, um, when people talk about a Sherlock Holmes story, uh, you know, you can you can say, well, a typical Sherlock Holmes story would be like this. But there isn't really such a thing as a typical Sherlock Holmes story, and I think that is what has made it quite hard for people to to imitate. 
um, Conan Doyle. It was easy to do badly, but um, hard to do well. Stick with us. We'll be back after this brief word from our sponsor. Well, we have big news from our friends at MX Publishing. The new MX Audio Collection has launched. It's an app. It contains audio content, which if you are a listener of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, and I take it that you are since you're listening to these very words right now, you will be interested in what MX has to offer. It's the world's largest Sherlock Holmes book publisher, of course, with over 500 books and 100 authors writing new Sherlock Holmes stories and content. And the audio collection that they've developed brings together fascinating author interviews, uh, theater performances, and Sherlock Holmes fiction and nonfiction. You'll hear from experts like Ben Cardell, a brand new and exclusive interview with New York Times bestselling author Lee Child talking about Reacher and Sherlock. Of course, his new Reacher series is coming to Amazon in February. The MX Publishing Audio Collection is available on the SoundWise app, and for the launch until the end of the weekend on the 19th of December, there is a 20% lifetime discount on the monthly subscription if you use the code LAUNCH. The collection includes selected short stories from the MX book of new Sherlock Holmes stories, which has dozens of volumes and hundreds of stories, and MX will be adding new stories every month as well. MX Publishing is a social enterprise. That means the proceeds from this app will be donated to Undershaw, a school for children with learning disabilities. And, of course, Undershaw was Arthur Conan Doyle's former home, where he wrote many of the Sherlock Holmes stories. The collection has raised over $90,000 for the school to date. If you're interested in this and other offerings from MX Publishing, just head over to mxpublishing.com. So what? what's one of the favorite things from the Sherlock Holmes stories that you like to pull out and use as an example to people when you're trying to convey some of Sherlock Holmes's wisdom? Um, I, uh, I, I, what something that springs to mind is, um, I really like, um, th- I really like the fact that Sherlock Holmes doesn't know, um, that the earth goes around the sun and that he can't name the, he can't name the planets, and um, Watson is, is astonished with his with his ignorance, and he, you know, and he and he says, "Well, you know, now I do now I do know that I shall do my best to forget it, you know, because he 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 doesn't Holmes doesn't believe in the concept of the know it all, you know, we that we have this idea of being brainy uh, that you, you sort of know everything. It's a modern idea, the the, the super know, desirable to be in. But Holmes hated that, you know, he wanted his knowledge to be specific and practical for his his job." Of uh, uh, his obsession with crime, and uh, anything that, any as well, as I say in the book, you know, if you told him how they get the stripes into the toothpaste, it would only clutter up his mind with toothpaste. He wouldn't. He, he really wants to know um, how everybody uh, has ever been strangled and why, you know, and then he can riffle through his mental database whenever he sees a dead body, and he can say, "Ah, oh, this is like that strangling, strangling in Hamburg in eighteen fourteen you know um he uh so i rather like his approach towards towards knowledge i found it quite reassuring and refreshing when you know when uh, when your friends say gosh didn't you know, ha- have you never heard of that actress or did you not know 
didn't know how to fix your car, you know, and you think, you know, like Sherlock Holmes, my knowledge is specifically ad- ad- adjusted to my re- my personal requirements in life. It, it doesn't, uh, I, don't, I don't, I don't, don't set out to be a to be a, a know it all. <laughs> I love that. Well, you know, and the the. Um I love that, you know, I mean, the constant theme here, obviously, and you stated in your book is relating aspects of Holmes, what we learn from observing and and what we learn from observing these emotional triggers, as you pointed out, and finding these triggers in the cases and and putting them to work in our lives. But I love the the examples. I mean, you just gave a great example. But another one that's in your book that I really liked, you know, you get into um, you see, but you do not observe. And that's such a trope of Sherlock Holmes. And you say, well, you know, you say, terms and conditions on software agreements are the same. They go on for 30 pages and we assume that this legal blizzard can only be due and proper. But we do not observe the clause on page 27 giving away our data to Moriarty to use in his future crimes. <laughs> And, and then you get into distraction. Well, I just love that. You know, it's such a great example. I, uh, yeah, it's kind of, um, it's like when you go to get your mortgage, you know, and they ask you so many questions, but, but by the time you've got to page 10, you would like literally sign anything. It was like, you know, can we cut off your left arm right now? We go, yes, yes. <laughs> you would just tick all the boxes because it's a kind of attrition, you know, there's a, it, it, it built into into legal legal legalese. Uh, uh, there is a, and uh, bureaucracy. There is a kind of attrition that wears uh, wears you down to the point where they're they're thinning out the field, you know, and you you get all this blizzard of information and questions, and it's all it's all designed to 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 wear you down and for them to win and for you to lose, you know. And uh, Holmes has got this wonderful thing about um, paying attention to detail. No, I've, I've got a cartoon uh, in the book at the end of um, a big poster on the wall saying "free, free," and Holmes is there with his magnifying glass peering at the small print underneath the word "free," uh, <laughs> because to him everything was in the fine detail. You know, he he says that you must don't be taken in by a general appearance. You know, he, somebody comes into the room dressed dressed uh, expensively, um, exuding wealth and confidence. You know. Holmes isn't, doesn't look at their clothes. He doesn't look at their eyeglass. You know, he'll look at their finger, look at their fingernails, look at the surface of their skin to read what kind of life that person has, has lived. And, um, you know, don't, and then in the modern world, so much of what we are exposed to is a game of general impressions. And we often are, lured away from looking at the facts and the details certainly in the world of 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 news you know where a headline is written in in a certain way to make you think something is happening and if you actually bother to read the story you will find that it's an extraordinary uh extraordinarily one-sided way of looking at those facts you know whichever the side of those facts that you're on so what did actually happen you know rather than what does this news story say has happened it might not be anything to do with what had originally happened so looking at the fine details i think is something that we can all be reminded it sounds obvious but it's amazing how we don't um i really think though that that comes across brilliantly uh from the stories (coughs) 
And sorry, isn't it amazing how that is incredibly consistent with what you just mentioned about homes not caring about the solar system, not caring about these things that have nothing to do with them, and working on specialized knowledge? It's the same concept when you apply that to general observations. He wants to look at specific details in order to draw conclusions. I think um, one of the things I say in the story is that if you want to come across like Sherlock Holmes, you know, don't don't try to know everything. But try to know what's relevant to your to your life, uh, to your work. Uh, uh, for example, if you're a barber, um, you know, you learn that there are sixty thousand hairs on the human head. So when your customer comes in and says, "Why is it taking so long?" you can say, "Are you aware I'm having to make a decision about sixty thousand individual hairs on your head?" You know the. Uh, and the customer will be will be very impressed with your knowledge of your subject. I want a discount. <laughs> <laughs> the other one was there was a fact about women smiling about twice as many times a day as a man. I mean, that I'm not. I'm you know there were, it was little things like that. Um, some of these facts, if you drop into your drop into your conversation, depending on the, your um, the requirements of your job kind of thing, uh, that they are rather, they are rather fun. And that is an element from Holmes that was very much copied, I think, in Mr. Spock, you know, and, um, Batman, the people who are, who suddenly know something, uh, some blinding, illuminating fact that, that, that man in the street doesn't know is great entertainment, isn't it? And, um, I love, you know, the other, one of the other very, one of the many very nice elements in this book is the insight, you know, you have a way of helping the reader reframe his own perception of the Sherlock Holmes stories. And, and the reason why I sort of put it like that is that of all these many tropes about Sherlock Holmes, you see, but you do not observe and his, his ability to disguise himself. You know, some of those have been lampooned in films. Now, Rathbone did it very successfully in in that film series you mentioned earlier, you know, these black and white pictures a couple of times. But, you know, you tend to, well, you can appreciate perhaps the absurdity of it occasionally, but you make a great point here that I, that I had never thought of. You know, Holmes says at one point um, to Watson, I left the house a little after 8 o'clock this morning in the character of a groom out of work. And, you know, you have a nice way of um, raising up this whole idea about disguises in a different way. You say, well, you know, after defeat in the English Civil War, Charles II escaped his foes disguised as a farmer. He even took a horse into a blacksmith and to get the temperature of public opinion and then hearing himself described as a rogue, he joined in the insults against himself and even suggested he deserved hanging. And, and then you say, you know, in World War II, Montgomery disguised tanks as trucks in preparation for an assault the enemy didn't expect. And, of course, uh, in D-Day, you know, the American army had a whole division, a ghost army dedicated to deceptions. And I never thought about that before, um, you know, that the importance of deception as it's been um, practiced in history can be uh, organized, you know, and can be viewed as sort of a continuation of what Holmes did in his, in his various disguises. And that's, I think, one of the elements here that makes this book very unique and interesting. Thank you. Yes, I mean, I, um, I found the subject of disguise very, uh, very interesting. I think it was a lot easier um, pre, probably pre-internet to get away with, with uh, disguising yourself as, as someone uh, th- these things, you know, have happened, but, um, 
one of the thing about Holmes is he tends to disguise himself as a type of person. He doesn't disguise himself as a person. He doesn't try to pretend to be like a particular. You know, often you get these movies where, especially in the sixties, where someone would pretend to be somebody else, or James Bond will turn up at a rendezvous pretending to be one of his own <laughs> enemies. And uh, but but uh, Holmes doesn't do that. He he disguises himself as a type of person. He actually says it in one of the stories. You know. I think it might be Charles Augustus Milverton. You know, if I go if I go in there as Sherlock Holmes, even uh, you know the the staff will clam up. They won't tell me anything. But if they think you know, if I go in as a, a luckless, jobless groom, um, I uh, you know, there's a wonderful sympathy among these people. You know, they they'll talk to me as one of their own. I'll find out ten times more as a down and out groom than I ever would as Sherlock Holmes. And now that's, that takes quite a lot of self-knowledge. You know, he knows he doesn't want to go in there and impress and intimidate people. He'd far rather um, go in. Uh, he, I say he likes to be underestimated. You know, he's clever. I mean, we often get further in life through being underestimated than through being feared. And um, Holmes cleverly describes himself as, as a type of person rather than as as a particular Im- imitation, and I'm sure he could have done uh, great <laughs> imitations if he wanted to, but um, that was something that came out from the stories. But it is rather easier, perhaps, to get away with in in prose. Um, in the movies, perhaps they've had to make a little bit of a joke out of it. Um, where there is a very funny scene in one of the films, I can't remember exactly, where they get somebody in who looks a bit like Holmes. And um, Watson assumes it's Holmes in disguise and starts taking the Mickey out of him, and uh, <laughs> I and he's got an absurd name as well, you know. And he says, "Oh yes, oh really, oh yes," and he, he's you know take, makes fun of this character, and, he, and then Holmes comes in the other tour. I can't remember the name of that film, but I I watched a lot of um, black and white movies as I was working on this book, but I watched them more for, the, for drawing the cartoons than for quoting the examples. Uh, so I use them as a kind of visual stimulus uh, just to see the great um, the great figure of Rathbone bestriding the screen, um, you know, to inspire me for drawing the cartoons. Uh, there were some things I wanted to say, but there was a limited amount of space. And in the end, I, I opted for mainly for re- referencing the originals, uh, the Conan Doyle, rather than saying in this movie he says that or whatever, but... Yeah, well, there's certainly no lack of material. That's for for sure. Um, you know, it, it, similar to um, what you were just uh, saying there, Glenn Holmes tends to get more out of people, uh, not not only with disguises, but his ability to properly question them. Uh, it, it's never a way of of threatening or cornering them. He he helps people to open up, and and really this is this is the job of a consultant. You know, any good consultant doesn't show up armed with knowledge already. A good, a really good consultant asks the right questions in order to uh, extract information that will help them draw conclusions. You, can you talk a little bit about Holmes's art of questioning and how we might take that into uh, consideration? It's quite funny. You, you've just made me think, you know, if you want to get some information about from your, from your child as to what their day was like at school, you don't ask them what their day was like at school. You know, you, you, you find another way in. You ask some totally irrelevant 
question and then they all come around in the end that once they're talking they'll they'll open up but um Holmes uh, there's 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 a wonderful thing actually in the blue car bunker where he wants to know um where a goose was bred and in order to get the information because the gu- the guy he's talking to who's selling the goose is rather kind of it's surly kind of impatient character got fed up with people pestering him about these benighted geese and so Holmes deliberately uh, has a bet with this person about where the where the goose was was bred, uh, but he deliberately gets it wrong because he knows that by losing the bet, the guy he's talking to will be so flushed with success that they will give all the details. You know, so Holmes is quite happy to take a knock to his pride and uh, you know publicly lose a bet if it will get him the answer that he requires. So that was the very. That was a very clever technique. And in, in the stories, he often he often does that. You know, he doesn't come in and says, I'm Sherlock Holmes and I demand to know this. He um, he will trick people by appearing to be weak or forgetful. You know, he deliberately gets something wrong and someone will correct him. And so uh, I think what the answer is, is that Holmes gives someone an incentive to tell them. You know, you can't just ask for something. You have to give somebody a reason to tell you it. And uh, it often ties into the one of the wisest things I ever read in a book, which was if you want someone to help you, uh, you want, if you want to complain about something in a shop, you don't go in and say, I want to complain. You go in and say, um, I wonder if you could help me. And that immediately gives that person the power because they're helping you. They're being kind rather than feeling browbeaten because you're saying, I want to complain. And since the day I read that line, I have never, I've every single time I've said, I wonder if you could help me. And I can tell you it's like, works like magic <laughs> and Holmes is like that you know he 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 gives people a reason um to talk to him he doesn't just demand to be to, to you know doesn't demand people to um give him the to spill the beans yeah one of my favorite scenes uh with with respect to that technique comes from uh, the sign of four when he goes down to uh, the docks and he's looking for the boat. Um, and, and he comes upon, uh, Mrs. Smith and, and her kids. And, uh, he specifically calls out the color of the, the color of the funnel of the Aurora. Uh, he says, it's a, it's a black funnel, you say? And she says, no, 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 it's, it's black with a white band. <laughs> and, and he, he lets her, uh, kind of showcase her knowledge. He lets her show off. He lets her inform him. And as as they're walking away, he turns to Watson and says, "The main thing with people of that sort uh, is is never to let them think that their information can be of the slightest importance to you. If you do, they'll they'll instantly shut up like an oyster. If you listen to them under protest, as it were, you're very yeah. likely to get what you want." Well, there's a very nice thing in the in the John de Carey books, you know, with George Smiley, where he interrogates people. And there's this thing where he, if he's trying to get information out of someone, he will deliberately ask them apparently stupid questions. So if, um, you know, if there's a, if there's an East German spy, try, you know, um, saying something, you know, vitally important about, um, about, uh, positions of troops on the, on the border or something, Smiley will suddenly say, Oh, was this a Tuesday or a Wednesday? You know, and the, and the um, the person will be so frustrated that Smiley doesn't seem to get it that they'll say, it doesn't matter what, whether it was a Tuesday or a Wednesday, there are a hundred soldiers there. You know, they'll, you know, they'll blurt out something that they, 
that they weren't supposed to say because they'll assume he's uh, he's an idiot. So um, you know that that reminds me of that kind of technique. To it's a similar thing uh, to the Holmes del- deliberately getting the color of the funnel wrong and things like that. Yeah, that's a great example. Well, uh, you know, one thing that has been on my mind since the beginning of the interview here is, um, you know, Bert and I are both consummate cocktail lovers. And <laughs> I, I feel we, we owe it to ourselves to talk to you about the Star Trek uh, cocktail uh, compendium. Or, or are they Spock tales? I don't know. Oh, well, that was funny enough. That was one of the working titles that we... Uh... <laughs> there you go. So two questions. One, what's your favorite recipe from that book? And two, can you see yourself creating a Sherlock Holmes-themed cocktail book? <laughs> well, I can see us doing it now. You've mentioned it. Um, I'm, 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 I'm kind of thinking it must have been done already because I've been asked to do another book now about cocktails. <laughs> um, I, can't, I cannot reveal it yet, but it's, uh, I've been, after that book, which went down rather well, um, same people have asked me if I will work on another, another one. Yeah. Um, I suppose I, I kind of like a couple of the Spock ones that we were, that we commissioned deliberately for the book. There were, some of the cocktails were based on existing cocktails and others were, um, were created for the book. There was rather a fun one called the Ice Planet, which, which was, um, inspired by Rura Pente, the Klingon, um, prison world. So it had this, um, lovely crushed ice quality. And, um, I think it was blue curacao. Um, we had, um, this idea, the idea was that you would pour lemonade over it at the last minute and it creates like an atmosphere, a misty atmosphere over the top just before you drink it. So that was great. And uh, I quite, I quite like the Spock ones, like the, the live long and prosper, which was kind of designed to be, I was going to say originally it was designed to be a healthier one because we felt that Vulcans, obviously they, apparently they do drink wine for ceremonial reasons. But um, they don't really drink alcohol, and um, it started out as a more healthy kind of co- cocktail. But then, quite near the end, <laughs> they decided to put tequila in it. So um, not so much. Uh, tequila is pretty pretty strong stuff. But um, yeah, so those would be probably be two: the Ice Planet and the, the Live Long and Prosper. I like that. But, but yeah. I, I tell you what, though the um, the Earl Grey Martini gone down very well if you want something a bit nice civilized picard uh ex- like experience we can we can make that happen so i i hope <laughs> i hope glenn that we have uh put this in the back of your brain to consider something around sherlock holmes and cocktails yes i'm i'm already i'm already um <laughs> i'm already starting to process it in the back well, you know, Bert and I would be happy to consult yeah. with you on the to book if you, if you need any uh, assistance. Absolutely. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, we had started, Scott and I had started, you know, no, making notes about a Sherlock Holmes cocktail book. That's um, true. Whatever happened to that project? Well, it still exists as a project. The question is, whatever happened to the time? Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> you the have time the, the required. Hair, hair of the Hound of the Baskervilles. The uh, like the hair of the dog, you know, you could have the <laughs> hair of the hound. <laughs> I like that. And, and recover. That's probably the absolute opposite of live long and prosper. <laughs> well, we had, you know, we've been trying to make matches, you know. So, for example, I think, you know, between the stories and um, 
and largely existing cocktails, I think. And so, for example, one of the obvious connections is the dying detective. Well, there is a standard historical cocktail, a very well-established cocktail called the Corpse Reviver. So we said, okay, <laughs> well, that's something we could align with the dying detective. And we sort of went on in that way. And then, I, you know, there's, there's another well-established cocktail called the Monkey Gland. And we said, well, what, what could be better if it's Creeping Man? Absolutely. Well, I'm thinking, what's that drink with the bees wing in it that they have um, in one of the in one of the stories? You know, and it's the clue because there's too much bees wing in one glass for it to yeah, have come from one. That's the Abbey Grange. Yeah. Mm, is that a kind of mead in that story? I'm trying to think where that comes from. Um, it was it was some sort of old wine, certainly. That the, yeah. the dregs of which were uh, poured into the third glass. So, well, I, yeah, that that I'm trying to think now of. Um, of occasions where we see Holmes, Holmes drinking, we don't. I don't think there are that many of them. When I was going through the story, I was. I, uh, I said uh, for my book, I think I said Holmes never cooked a meal in his life. It was something of a, a uh, an intuitive leap from me because, of course, I, I wasn't there for every day of his life. But I'm fairly convinced that Holmes always had had a cook or some or somebody looking after him, uh, Mrs. Hudson, because I'm sure he wouldn't have added culinary skills to his necessary. His list of necessary things to know. Well, and that's that's played up uh, lovely in um, in the the Granada version of the Hound of the Baskervilles, where Holmes invites uh, Watson to share a meal with him in his uh, in his man cave, and uh, <laughs> he's very eager for for Watson to try it. Please, Watson, do try my steel. It's quite disgusting, Holmes. Yeah, yes, it is. Well, it's better when it's hot. <laughs> <laughs> See, Holmes wouldn't care. He would only, it would only the nutrition would matter to him. I suppose. Although he does, he does seem to have a bit of enthusiasm sometimes. You know, for a meal when he, when he, you know, when when they have um, the stride round and um, and uh, they say, I think we have a we have some cold we have some cold beet on the board or something. You, if you would like to join us, so he he does have a bit of relish for his for his victuals, doesn't he? Mm. Absolutely. Some, something a little nutritious at Simpsons, perhaps? I used to go yeah. to the Sherlock Holmes pub in London when I worked a bit closer to that area. And uh, just simply because it was the Sherlock Holmes, or it'd be quite nice to say to one of your friends, let's meet at the Sherlock Holmes. And uh, it was quite funny. Um, having no, It's quite nice on a winter's evening to have a pint of beer in the Sherlock Holmes. But what would be funny is that the uh, bus trips would turn up, you know, every 45 minutes. You'd be surrounded by... 80 Japanese people or something and they'd all be wandering around and then they would vanish and then you could have a, you could carry on your conversation for half an hour and then, you know, 80, you know, French people would turn up, you know, so it was on this kind of route, you know, they would, but there, there were some quite interesting artifacts in there from the movies and things. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a favorite uh, locale. Um, we, we, we like it a lot. Well, um, the book is Sherlock Holmes's Little Book of Wisdom, How to Deduce What on Earth is Going On by Glenn Dakin. Glenn, it sounds like you have um it sounds like you have some material up your sleeve, not just cocktails and food wise, but um additional bits of wisdom that you might be able to share. As you said, the format only allowed you to do so much. <laughs> it is it is it probable? Is it possible uh that uh, we might see a second volume here? Uh, well, we'll have to see about that, but I am working on another book, which is a Holmes-related project, 
but I have to keep that secret for now. But that is to just to let you know there is something else Holmes related on its on its way, hopefully next year. Excellent. Well, I hope you will come back and speak to us about that. I I'd love to. I'd love to. I um, it's just a matter of uh, get, getting it getting it tidied up. Really, I've done I've done about ninety percent of that project, but um, you know, often it's the last bit that's the it's the hardest. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah. So there's there is a little there's a be very actually I'd be very interested to see what you think of the next one. There's a little bit of a little bit of a cheeky departure, but um. We'll, I'll uh, I'll let you know. You'll be among the first to know. Excellent. Well, we look forward to it. Glenn Dakin, thank you so much for joining us here on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. That's great. Thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you. It's nice to, to, to speak to people who are informed about homes. You never know what is going to come from a conversation with an author. And we've seen that again and again in all the years that we've done this podcast and talked to people. And this book, you know, this book of wisdom, Sherlockian wisdom, has led to such a fascinating conversation with Glenn. I loved what he had to say. He said, Holmes takes us beyond the superficialities to what lies beyond. And his assessment of the canon, his identifying all these emotional trigger triggers in things like the hound and so on, the emotional triggers and other stories, you know, is really it's a level of depth that you would not have expected. And it's really it's very worthy of a Sherlockian. And and for those of our listeners who think that, you know, some of these references to Charles II and other things, that this must be a very um, English book. No, no, because along the way, we didn't get into this, but Glenn also touches on Buster Keaton and Benjamin Franklin and Abraham Lincoln. Uh, it really is a remarkable book, remarkable little book it's, and a great conversation. It, it is uh, all of the above. I mean, this this is really kind of a universal book, and it, it reminds me a bit of some of the uh, recent books on self-improvement, self-empowerment that rely on Stoic philosophy and other of these uh, shortcuts to uh, kind of the ancient and universal world. And in our case, it's a shortcut to a Victorian and universal world that we're looking at here. And, it, you know, it, Glenn actually does a, a, a great job as a, a, a non-committed Sherlockian. I mean, as we said, he, he has all the hallmarks of our people, um, but... In, in the intro, he says, the fact that you have recognized Holmes as your personal guru is proof alone that you already have that spark. Hmm. And I, I just think it's wonderful that he's able to take so many of these lessons and process them and package them up in a way that make them accessible, universal, and uh, quite, quite frankly, timeless. One of the great Sherlockian periodicals is back, the 2021 Sherlock Holmes Review, edited by Steve Doyle, art direction by Mark Gagan, with all new contributions from Nicholas Meyer, Robert Doherty, Frank Cho, Anne Margaret Lewis, Steve Hawkinsmith, Les Klinger, Jimmy Aiken, and more. 
118 pages about Sherlock Holmes. The illustrators, community, collecting, comics, reviews, film and TV, scholarship, including new artwork, Irene Adler drawn by the inimitable Frank Cho. It looks like a book and reads like a magazine. It's the Sherlock Holmes Review. Get your first edition copy of this essential 2021 Sherlockian annual, the all-new Sherlock Holmes Review, at wessexpress.com. Ah, well, that timeless tune you probably recognize as the theme song to Canonical Couplets. That's right. It is everyone's favorite Sherlockian quiz show in which we give you two lines of poetry and then we expect you to pull out exactly which Sherlock Holmes story we're talking about. Now, if you were around here in these parts in the last episode, that was episode 229, you'll recall we gave you this clue. The victims were a mile from shore and eminently sinkable. Should the universe be ruled by chance? It's really quite unthinkable. Bert, do you know which story we're talking about here? Yes, that's the great. I love this case. It's one that revolves around a terrible incident that happened downstairs in the kitchen at Baker Street when Mrs. Hudson inexplicably damaged a creme caramel she was cooking. That's the case Watson called the crooked flan. Well, we got a few reactions out of that this time around. That's pretty good, Bert. Oh, we have to have these people back. I like that a lot better than the guy with the trombone. He's, but he's a regular. I keep him over here in the corner of my office. I had to, I had to, I had to put the mute in his uh, trombone this time around. So I, I apologize for that. Uh, we're happy to have him make an appearance at any time. Um, as usual, you are way off base. Um, yeah, I know it's it's crazy, uh, but. Uh, the, the good news is we do have uh, the correct answer. It, we were looking for the cardboard box. The cardboard box, yeah. Mm. yeah. So, yeah, a mile away from shore, that, you know, they were out in the rowboat amidst the fog, yeah. Well, better luck mm. next time. Better luck next time. Well, uh, we do have a winner for this. So we are, well, we hope we have a winner. We're going to pick them right now uh, because we're going to wheel in the big prize wheel and give it a spin. And it's slowing down and landing on number 27. And that corresponds to Rob Nunn. Rob, congratulations. We'll have a copy of Lindsay's book out to you ASAP. Okay, and that means it is now time for this episode's canonical couplet. And again, remember, the prize is a copy of Glenn Dakin's Sherlock Holmes Little Book of Wisdom, How to Deduce What on Earth is Going On. A well-known Surrey family widespread rumors of a death homes by watson's bedside while the client shivereth 
If you know this week's canonical couplet, put it in an email addressed to comment at IHearOfSherlock.com with canonical couplet in the subject line. If you are among all of the correct answers and we choose you at random, you'll win the prize. Good luck. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. It's always fun, you know, doing something like this with you, Bert. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I really like that. How many how many cars do we have in the motor pool? Well, I'm not even going to go there, buddy. Um, if any of you want to look that joke up, that is a Buddy Hackett joke with uh, Colonel Johnson. So we'll go no further than that. Actually, if, if you see Bert and I at an event and you want us to tell you the Buddy Hackett Colonel Johnson joke, just pull us aside and we'll do you a favor. We'll do you a yeah. solid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, uh, we have done it again here. By the way, if uh, folks, uh, if you are uh, patrons of the show, uh, thank you very much. We do have uh, end-of-the-year gifts to thank you for your patronage that we are in the midst of processing right now. And just a note, if you're paying us via PayPal, we appreciate that too. But guess what? It makes it a lot more difficult for us to do this because we're looking to go into an automated phase next year where there's not so much administrative work on, well, yours truly. Um, I would love it. If you are in PayPal, wanted to switch over to Patreon, or if you're neither, simply going to uh, Patreon. Uh, Just hit that orange button on our site, become a patron, and you can support the show for as little as a dollar a month. And there is a scale of of, uh, contributions that grant you prizes, and we're in the process of putting those through the ringer right now. So appreciate your patience, appreciate your support. And let's get on to moving to 2022 with great fervor. In the meantime, I remain the half-Decembered-out Scott Monty. And I'm the half-timbered Burt Walder. And together, we say... The Games games of of Foot! <laughs> the, the games, games of foot. You know, I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. 